I've put on a curator suit. It was so tight, it became a second skin, melted with the first one. And now, I can't wait to melt, because I've started to spit venom. I wander across white walls and neon lights, where I wonder if radicalism can fit in square meters. The end point is when it's really brilliant and white and like it's really perfect, but then it has like this afterlife after being this perfect. Design, design, design. Design Research Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Design Research Podcast. My name is Arif Kornweitz and I'm here with Lisbeth Fitt. Hello, Lisbeth. Hello, Arif. Um, Lisbeth, you're part of the Knowledge Circle that initiates these podcasts. What is that about? Uh, well, the, first of all, the Knowledge Circle is a kind of, let's say, institute within the Design Academy that promotes, stimulates and shows research. Um, and we decided upon a design research podcast. Yeah, because it's a better means to get behind the visible project, you could say, and talk a bit more about everything that, that happened on the way to that. Okay, and that's exactly what we're going to do now with Baiba Soma and Eloise Charital. Baiba graduated from uh, Wellbeing, the Bachelor, last June, I think. Yep. And Eloise, uh, you graduated from Design, Curating and Writing, which is now called the Critical Inquiry Lab. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, both of you. Hey, hello. Baiba, your project is called Expired White. Could you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, it's divided in two parts where I made a book, like a research book, and I went into beauty, cinema, and also sculptures. And then I made objects. So basically I weaved cables into a carpet. I made a basket. I also tried to make a cabinet and look for another function for the trash we see as trash. Eloise, your project is called When is White White Enough? And we have heard a, a poem that you wrote as part of the project in the beginning of the podcast. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so uh, my project is entitled When is White White Enough? And it's a theater play. But before I did the theater play, I actually also wrote uh, a thesis. And I did my thesis uh, using uh, mainly poetry, And the reason was we are in an international school and my command of English is not perfect. And it was easier for me to write poetry because it's more accepted, let's say, in a way to in poetry that you will not use the perfect word because sometimes the word that you are using is more poetic. So it's fine to use it, even though it doesn't make uh, sense for some time uh, in English. But it was also because I wanted my thesis to, uh, in a way, contrast with the pop papers that are written about the subject that I'm dealing with. So whiteness, uh, Greek, uh, classical Greek sculpture. Most of the time, these are a topic that I um, talk about uh, in really serious way, not poetic. Uh, you will hear that these people, when they write this text, they, have, they are really uh, objective because they are historian. And this is something that I don't uh, agree with, I, I think. A text is always uh, subjective. It's always about uh, the person that is writing it too. And I wanted to uh, make it more uh, explicit. And that's what you do with poetry. Because when you write a poem, people are like, oh, so it comes from you, um, basically. And could you also describe the project that came after that? 
Uh, yeah, and so after that, I did a theater play because there was also the element of poetry that is part of my theater play. So the script is really about um, my subject. So it's about the research and it's about why people removed colors from the Greek sculpture. But then in the theater plays, there is also the idea of a stage, which is something that was really uh, important to me because I think that uh, the sculpture that I'm talking about, they have been staged in institution. And so uh, that's why I wanted to also explore the idea of the stage and how it's also a way of manipulating uh, because you show only a frame of something when you... Yes, stage something. So I also played a lot uh, with uh, colors. For example, the lighting is uh, important. And yeah, in a way, recreate uh, some conditions that are maybe uh, used in museum, but that you don't necessarily perceive. But how did you arrive at the topic of whiteness? Maybe Baiba? Uh I was actually always working with color because I did uh, the bachelor uh, for four years. And uh, I also studied in the um, well-being department. Uh, and I kind of always felt like this strange kid who always loved color. And I, like, I always had to put it somewhere. But then uh, when I did my internship, I also did it about the color. But then when I asked about like, the, the kind of the best-selling textiles they do, they said that mostly people buy just like the neutrals and mostly whites. And, uh, but they were working with color to kind of emphasize the, the white and make it more kind of appealing. And then I kind of started to look around and I uh, realized that people are kind of afraid of using the color. And I wanted to kind of discover the, um, why they are using white and what does it mean. So I went also to the, this kind of historical part of it. And I think I just wanted to kind of understand the, our connection to white. Eloise, how is that for you? How did you arrive at whiteness? I was sharing some of your interest too. I was really interested by the white cube. Uh, so more about like, let's say, institutions that are using a white thing. And yeah, why does everything look like an Apple store? Basically, like more and more and like seamless and... I was always interested in the theory of colors when I was doing art history. And I think it was two years ago, I discovered like this, there was this story about a professor. Uh, she's called uh, Sarah Bond. She's a, an American scholar, a classicist. And once she wrote uh, this uh, article online that was called uh, Why We Need to See the Antiquity in Colors, uh, something like that. And what happened is that then she received a lot of death threats from a white supremacist in the US and why um, are people so violent? Why, how come that a color like white can uh, make people have this type of reaction in a way? So that's why I also wanted to dive a little bit into this. And I think also there, there is this other book which is called uh, Chromophobia by David Batchelor in, yeah, <laughs> in which I talk about how, let's say, like Western society are in a way uh, afraid of colors. So he, he makes this word to like, um, yeah, to give it a name basically that we are chromophobe, so afraid of, of color. And yeah, I wanted to know why, basically. Yeah, I also read that book. Yeah. It was so nice. <laughs> Are you sharing his conclusion about why everything is white? 
I kind of related to him yeah. because he was really uh, saying the things about like how we are afraid of using the color and how actually usage of color can be really seen as naive and not really serious. Yeah, I think he made a really good job by uh, explaining to what color is associated usually in collective psyche. So basically you will... Um, you will see colors as something that is more related to kids or that is more related to women, basically. And so it gives a lot of example. For example, when uh, they start to have uh, colors, when they start using the colors in movies in Hollywood, for example, they will use the colors uh, only for, let's say, animated movie or things for kids or for women. But uh, dramas were supposed to be black and white for longer than uh, even though they had the color thing. So how white is associated with something that is serious. Uh, yeah. And um, what is white exactly? It's a non-color and all colors also at the same color time. at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I think it's really interesting because it's kind of like everything mixed together, but then it's like this perfection and pure whiteness. Yeah. But it's also an ID because sometimes you have things that maybe you will talk about that are kind of yellowish, but you're still associated to something that is white basically because you relate to the former color uh, that it was even though it changed like we kind of agree agreed upon the fact that white uh, becomes this kind of yellowish or brownish uh, basically yeah Barbara I wanted to ask you about the things that you made from the let's say electronic wires is that mm -hmm. that what you use or and yeah. also the maybe the fridge doors or the so um Why do you think that many consumer products are white? Well, uh, when I did my research, it was mostly because uh, it's kind of considered really hygiene, like hygienic uh, and clean. And also, um, well, the thing which was, well, it's not plastics, but I did the research about um, also tea bags. And when they started to produce them, they... Um, At first it was from silk and then they changed to paper. It was a bit yellowish, uh, but it wasn't really appealing to the consumers. So they started to bleach tea bags, which was a bit strange for me because I thought like, okay, you take the tea bag out of the, the other paper bag, you look at it for one second, you put it in the tea and it becomes again like a different color. But I started, I started to bleach it because uh, then the consumers thought that it's more uh, kind of hygiene and more uh, how do you say it like uh, clean. appealing clean yeah. so more safe for you even though it's completely not true yeah mm -hmm. like you trust the white you yeah know. exactly and then also because of the the fridges were made uh, white because uh, then it's kind of associated with the fact that it's going to be safe for your food And uh, a lot of these uh, technical discoveries are also, like the first ones they did, they were also made uh, in white. Uh, for example, like the first plane, um, also like the, the space shuttle and uh, everything like that. So it's kind of like it comes with a new discovery and kind of this enlightenment. Do you want to add something, Eloise? No, I agree <laughs> with everything that you said. Yeah, I haven't done the same type of research, so, but it's really interesting. I think I, I've been reading a bit also on a web page that you made, and I found that the Greek sculptures, they had color that was kind of yeah, eroded yeah. Up f through time probably, and then the color disappeared more or less. But there's also a different 
use of marble between the Greek marble and the marble from Italy, for instance. So it is already a bit less white. Yeah. Is that, uh, yeah, so according to the marble that you, you are using, you have some marble that are clearly white and you have some mar marble that are some uh, dots, uh, basically. And also there is something that it's more, let's say in the sculpture field at least, it's more accepted to have colors when it's the marble that is already colored than when you have paint on white marble. This is the thing that is not accepted, to cover let's say white marble because we consider it as the a pure white marble and like the symbol of uh, purity and then for um, i mean things are changing now but for a long time it was considered as something bad to do like to add colors on something so pure uh, basically so the the greeks when they i think you already spoke about it but otherwise we we talk about it later so when they try to remove the paint like in your reenactment or play what you are stating did they try to remove the paint or did they try to whiten the marble? It's a good question. I think both, because uh, by removing the color, you make it more white uh, than it was before. But what I was really interested in is the fact that the act of removing colors on marble has been done uh, in violent way. Marble is a kind of a soft uh, stone. And if you want to remove things from this stone, you're supposed to use only a tool that is going to be softer than this stone. Uh, but what has been done in the thing that I was looking at, uh, so it's a removal of paint of some of the Parthenon sculpture, is that they've used uh, tools that are harder than the marble is itself. So when you remove colors with this kind of tools that were used, it can be considered as a violent act because you're using a harder material and by using a harder material you are damaging the first material that is the marble. That's what they did also in the British Museum. <coughs> like at the start of the 20th century, they had like the like they had uh, sculptures from like Greek sculptures, but they didn't want to remove the paint but like the um, the moss or like a bit of the yeah. dirt which was on it. And then they had a team of uh, just people working in the museum doing the cleaning. But it was like you said, it was completely yeah. not. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's about this uh, specific fact. But they also call it uh, moist, even though it wasn't necessarily moist. It, it could have been colors that were removed, but we will never know basically now but then they also had like a lawsuit with the actually greek uh, government i yeah. think for that because yeah. they wanted to have the sculptures back because i mean that's from the greeks but then the british museum kind of uh not lied but just didn't want to kind of admit that they actually did the cleaning process so both of you speak about research actually already when you describe your project right so you you read the same book, but there's also historical facts that both of you know. How did you start your project in, in the sense of how did you start the research? Was the research at the beginning of the project or, yeah, how did that go? Uh, I started with the research and actually I got quite uh, crazy into all these kind of aspects and areas of the white because like I kind of touched like different areas of the whiteness and then after that I, w I knew that I want to also materialize it somehow and then I was really interested in this kind of expiration date of the white goods and uh, the white uh, we kind of uh, 
throw away and can easily replace. Uh, so the research came first. Yeah, same for me. Uh, but yeah, I think I've started like really with a um, specific case, basically, from which the research then uh, take upon, basically because there is uh, there is a sort of court case at the British Museum. So basically, I start working with an archive, uh, something that was pre-existing a case study. And then from this, then I've started uh, reading on whiteness with uh, books. But it was really tangible uh, at the beginning because I had this specific story that I wanted to uh, talk about. And I don't know if I can like establish like a boundary. When, the, when did the research stop or start? Because I think it actually never, st it did start, but it actually never stopped. I mean, till June when I was preparing the graduation, I still was like researching it. Uh, and and yeah, and then I, w I was uh, doing most of my research through uh, yeah archives, and then uh, I was also working with uh, a museum in Greece that uh, helped me uh, a lot. And how did that go? The combination of research and practice. How did they influence each other? For me, it was difficult uh, actually to do this stuff of like practice-led research. I think that's how it's called sometimes, because let's say that you want to s to do. Uh, if I take my example, you want to do a theater play, so you need to materialize it in, in something. But uh, I was against things that are static, because I think that was the problem that I have with whiteness and how it is presented, is that it's something always uh, static. And so in a way, my research on this was um, changing my practice in a way that it wasn't possible to do anything anymore, because I didn't want it to have things static, but then what do you do? So then you do... Uh, yeah, a theater play, but is it also still too static? Um, so I think it, yeah, it had a lot of impact on the way I materialize a thing because my research was uh, telling me, oh, this. So I, I would have this example in the research, and I'll be, oh, this is not good. For example, so I, I shouldn't reproduce it. Yeah, it was a difficult experience. <laughs> So why in the end did you choose for the theater play? Yeah, because I had to do something. And in the way it was for me, the only thing that was, um, that was the form that will allow me to put all this research in. Because it's a theater play, but it, it's, it's a sort of like documentary uh, at the same time. So it does give place for the research to be present on a stage without being, uh, let's say, uh, crystallized on one form. And also, so it's uh, between, yeah, theater, documentary, performance. And it's also something that uh, when you reproduce it, let's say if I will do the theater play again, you can always change your script, you know, uh, basically. So it will, it was a form for me that was easy to connect to, to my research because my research is always uh, taking me to new places and giving me new information. And through the theater play, I can always like uh, organize uh, this information differently. Yeah. So it sounds more like a research-led practice, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> instead of practice-led, exactly. <laughs> okay, but this idea of like practice-led research, is that something that you get from the academy or? Yeah, definitely, I think in curating and writing, especially this year, there was a lot of emphasis that was put 
on this. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. And Baiba, in your department, I think it's less common to do, let's say, archival research, maybe like you did, or it's more material research. And uh, did you do both or how did it go? uh For me, whenever I do a project, it's really important to kind of have this uh, base of the project and like the that I explain the idea with like uh, the different aspects of like in this case, the whiteness and how we cherish it. And then uh, I knew that I had to materialize it somehow. And then I wanted to have this kind of uh, the two opposites where the book uh, shows the the perfection and how we cherish the white. And what actually happens when I tried to materialize the the discarded white goods and uh, how we don't uh, see them as something perfect and something that we should uh, keep and cherish. So... I would like to know something about the time spent on research, maybe, and the making. Did it go hand in hand? Was it like really uh, different stages? For me, it's always really hard to stop researching. <laughs> and I always have this problem that I kind of collect all the material, like the, I read a lot and like I collect the information. And then I uh, spend really a little, little bit of time of the making part. And then this time, before the graduation started, I actually said to myself, like, okay, so you have time till May, like at the start of May, that I can do the research, and then I stop and I do the materialization part. Because I I started to read everything, and then I just kind of went a bit crazy, because, like, I saw all these connections with white, and like, oh, but what is this? And, like, maybe this is interesting. But then this time, I really, I, uh, I put, like, a deadline for myself for this kind of the, the book research I did. Yeah, same for me, I think. But also, like, um, it was because uh, with the curriculum, I think it also forced me at a certain point to stop researching. And at a certain point, I was really into researching because uh, there was this, the thesis that we had to do and because I was supposed to also write about it. I mean, it's mandatory in the master, you have to do... Uh, a thesis. So at this point, I was really into the research in a way I could translate it into uh, a new form, a new type of writing, let's say. And yeah, I think beginning of May, uh, I thought also now it's time to like uh, do something with the research, even though I think by writing a script, it's also a new form of research that you are doing, but that can be um, something that you can also show to other people. So the topic of whiteness is a bit tricky, right? I mean, it's not tricky. It's just very charged. Not only are we in a completely white room right now, but also all of us are white. And um, we haven't really addressed this until now. But I was wondering how you approach this topic and how you position yourself in this discourse that's also been, like you're saying, with being kind of hijacked by maybe white nationalists. Uh, it, it's being politicized, right? But, well you're entering that and immediately you kind of you you take a stance but how do you do that like how do you position yourself towards this discourse i think it's always a difficult question and it's always the question that comes with the subject that we are dealing with so i think it's yeah of course important to acknowledge the fact that i'm white and i'm talking about whiteness and i'm actually also doing a research about white privilege so uh let's say digging into my own privilege uh, in a way, um, in a form that you can, so in a way that you can present it and 
make it more understandable also for people. So I think, yeah. Uh, I think I'm more like, uh, I don't want to take a position and say if it's right or wrong to use the white. Like I don't want it to be more like an observer and see this, why we have such a connection with the white collar and why we actually tend to use it so much. But there are, I just wanted to look at the aspects and not say that you shouldn't use it or it's too much used in the like the manufacture or like also sculptures and everything. I just wanted to kind of understand why we actually are so connected to this color. Yeah, but I think also in a way that's why our subjects are like, uh, we are looking at the same thing, but you are looking at um, maybe how wh white is used and I'm looking at the disappearance of color, which are a little bit two different things basically. Can you speak a bit more about the difference between them? Yeah, so it's a little bit related to the question that you were asking before. Is it like removing a pigment or is it making it more white? Uh, basically, because there is an act of removal to come back to something that is seen as the most important condition. Basically, so that's why I consider as it's um, something, it's a conscious act of uh, removing something to go back to something that you maybe prefer or that has more uh, yeah so that's why I think m uh, maybe it's more linked to the idea of uh, whiteness and uh, white privilege because then the subject that I'm dealing with so classical sculpture that have been used in a lot of uh, nationalistic uh, discourses or they are also used uh, in communication for example you will have there is this group in the US they call Identity Europa and they have a communication campaign where they are really active in the universities in the USA and so they distribute a lot of uh, posters to students but they also put uh, posters in the university where you see faces of classical Greek or Roman sculpture. So it has been really reused without the colors. So the removal of colors have allowed certain people to reuse this sculpture as a symbol of the white men, essentially. Yeah, I think you refer to Barbara in your research as whitewashing. Whitewashing, yeah. Like there was this case in the 16th century when they changed the religion in the United Kingdom. Uh, well, England and then they were changing like the religion in the churches so all the um, uh, artworks they had on the on the walls they were just whitewashing with the white paint because that was well, that was the easiest and cheapest way to remove them and then also the the same case kind of happened later in Hong Kong when they had the plague epidemic they were basically they were just making the whole city white because that was considered uh, hygienic. And then in that way, they also saw the places which were searched and uh, cleaned after the, the plague victims. So they were whitewashing everything to uh, remove the unwanted or also like to mark the, the safe places. In both cases, I wonder, did your conception of color change because of your investigation into whiteness? I actually missed color <laughs> during my research. At the end of the, my research, I was like, oh, everything is so white. <laughs> so I actually wanted to kind of, look. I was just looking through books with color to kind of 
make myself feel Remember. better. Remember. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yes. <laughs> it was, uh, it kind of really became really sterile and a bit, uh, yeah, like you, like we mentioned before that white is really considered like the serious color. And I kind of started to feel really serious after the research. Yeah. <laughs> so there there is a link between the materials that you're using, right? Because you're speaking about marble being sort of cleaned of color and plastic. I mean, plastic is oil, right? So also that is being whitened in the, in the sort of the industrial processes. And I'm wondering what the kind of material side of your research was, because we spoke about discourse a lot now, but I'm sure you also looked like more into the materials and maybe you can speak about the resources that you used for that. Yeah, so talking about materials, I was working with the uh, National Archaeological Museum in Athens uh, because they are doing a lot of researches about marble and about how marble was painted, uh, for example. So there is this thing that is really interesting because so colors have been erased of uh, marble, but now you have scientists that are trying to find the colors uh, again. But it's really difficult because these sculptures are really, really old now. And so they disappear because of, uh, I don't know the name, acid rain, uh, for example. So you only have few traces. And I know there is this new techniques that was found, I think, by the British Museum. And it's with... the. There is this guy, I can't remember his name, but he found out that with infrared picture, uh, if you take infrared picture of a, a Greek marble, for example, there is this pigment that is Egyptian blue, which was uh, one of the pigments that were used by the Greek to paint the marble, that shines. So basically you have this picture of uh, that are really dark of a sculpture and on this picture you have something that is shining and it's the Egyptian blue that is uh, getting out from, from the picture. So yeah, I think this was more like material research uh, but how it wasn't really about the marble actually but more about the colors that were used on the marble, basically, with your uh, that are well, that are invisible when you look at the marble, you see it white. But if you use this type of technologies, then you see things that, let's say, the human eye can't uh, can't see. Uh, well, I didn't really do like an investigation in the material and how it's produced and everything. I c I just know like. Uh, a few stuff how it's like uh, all these household objects are made but then what I did with like gathering the material I, w I started to just walk around the, the city and look at the streets and when uh, there are these there's trash days what people throw out and then I took all those things and then I also visited the scrapyard a lot and uh, what I discovered was the fact that people bring their old household items there For example, like the washing machines and fridges. And then what the, the people in the scrapyard do are taking the plastic kind of shells and the cases away from the electronics. And then the, the white plastics are just in the garbage and then they reuse like the 
the metal parts inside. So for them, even though uh, you could see maybe sometimes that the, the plastic case is like recyclable, it always ends up in the trash. And when I went there, I wanted to take all those things. They were really happy because they were like, yeah, well, we don't know where to put them, which <laughs> just like go into the trash and just collect them. And also the fact that I collected different uh, plastics and you can see that it's really from a different year because of the, the shape of the phone or even the size of the phone. But the thing with plastic is that over the time it uh, gets a bit more and more yellow. So in the end I have like, it's not one shade of white, it's like it's really different and then I put them together. And how important is that to do research outside the academy? I think it's essential. Yeah. <laughs> outside of these walls, you have access to all different world of people that have really specific uh, expertise, which I think is really important mm -hmm. in this kind of project when you are really doing like uh, intense maybe uh, research. You need to have uh, to see and meet people that have been researching this for 10 years because They exist, they are there, but they are not in the school. Uh, How do you yeah. find them? Online, most of the time, <laughs> you get recommendations from people. Yeah, the books, like, yeah. usually I read a book and you have, at the end, you know, the bibliography. And this is where you find all the sources, because you have one guy that basically did all the work for you. He already yeah. talked <laughs> to these people, so... Yeah, and also, like, these... Um, conferences they have and yeah. you can find like the videos of them talking about their research and I think it's really important to kind of get out of the design academy bubble yeah. because you can't really do the research and just like say oh I think something like I think the white is like this but I think it's really important to kind of yeah put a background on it and like exactly. really look into the people who are actually yeah like dealing with it yeah. most of the time yeah so how are you supported with that Uh, by your department or the academy in general? I think for the graduation, they were actually really like pushing us to see outside of the, the borders of the school, to really like look into other things or, oh, go see this exhibition or read this book and giving like references to actually make the work we're doing or the research we're doing stronger. Yeah, I was actually really well supported like because I... I went to Greece two times for like three research and everyone was fine with it because yeah, you leave the school for maybe a month, you know, and you will not be there, but they do realize that it's important for your work to actually go there. Because I'm actually working with context most of the time. I can't do like only remote uh, research. Yeah, the same way you went to the scrapyard, I had to go to Greece, so. And I'm also wondering when doing the research or the, or the project, was there a tipping point that made you, give you like, okay, this is where I need to go or like, oh God, now I don't know what to do anymore. I read the, the book from Kenya Hara, like the Japanese uh, designer. And well, he's kind of like a philosopher. Well, but he write, wrote the book uh, about white, but then his idea of the white was so, uh, Like it was really philosophical and uh, about he was talking about the emptiness and the new start. And I re I, after reading that book, I was really like, okay, but then should I go into that direction as well? And like the more I read, the more it was kind of opening up the, the research field. So I, I had reached a point where I was like, okay, should I stop now or should I just try, try to make it more uh, condensed and not go really into like the whole world? 
kind of research. Yeah, uh, I think there was this interesting moment for me was uh, I during the whole process I had a really strange relationship with the British Museum because they knew that I was researching on what happened in the British Museum in so in 1937 the cleaning of the Parthenon marble and the chief curator of the Greek and Roman department of the British Museum is the one who did the report about what happened so is the one who did this report that I'm investigating again, reinvestigating uh, somehow. So I was trying to reach him and we exchanged some emails uh, for like maybe a month. And it seems at the beginning, at the beginning that, he, that he was kind of happy that I was researching it. But then I needed to have uh, more information from the British Museum. And then it was impossible to reach, the, to reach him. He, he gave me his cell phone, but every time that I was trying to call him, he never like uh, and actually answered me. So we never uh, talk with um, our voice. Basically, we always uh, talk through through emails. And I think at this point, when I realized that I will never get to speak uh, with him, it also gave me a lot of more, uh, much more freedom uh, in my process because I was, I, th I thought that. Um, okay, so this guy doesn't want to talk with me, but I don't know what are uh, his reason. I don't know what is, why he's doing it, but it seems that then it's, it's important that someone is um, investigating what he did, let's say, uh, before, and I can do it the way I want because I'm not going to speak with him and, let's say, rely on what he's saying. So I think it was actually a good thing that we never talk. Yeah, maybe we could go a bit to the public. For who did you make this? Who do you consider your public? And in, in what way does the, the materialization connect to that? Mm, it's really difficult to answer this question, also because it's a question that my tutors ask me through the whole year. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I don't know, I, I think I tend to change my answer most of the time. So uh, at, the at the beginning, I was like, oh, I think it's for like more people that are professional, uh, people that are already in museum institution and that they get to realize uh, that uh, what, what happened in the institutional world can have um, dramatic sometimes consequence on, let's say, the regular uh, normal world. But then I thought actually maybe it's for the museum audience that I'm doing this, to have a counter-narrative to, to the one that is delivered by a um, museum. But yeah. In the end, I think I'm also doing it for, uh, let's say, my peers. Uh, yeah, um, young students in uh, art history or uh, design or art school, basically, to so that we um, understand that uh, white is not just white. You know, when you're using it, you're actually uh, dealing with uh, construction. You're actually dealing with the theories uh, that are behind. So yeah, different audiences. <laughs> yeah, I think the same for me. Well, the consumer, I must say, I think. Like whoever has ever thrown something white away and then they see it in front of their eyes, it's not actually gone, that it's still there. Yeah, different groups of people, I guess. Yeah, 
because you have the consumer throwing something away, but when it's broken, what else can you do? So yeah. actually, maybe you're also talking about producing yeah. the producers who might have to take it back. Yeah, exactly. That even though it's kind of, they say it's recyclable, it's not not actually being recycled and then that ends up in the scrapyard or in the landfill. Would you say that why in the end is kind of an in-between state? I mean, an in-between state that is basically presented as something stable, but that is always either like about to go yellow or um, sort of turned, like something else being turned wide. Maybe. I've never thought of about why that's why, but that's <laughs> an interesting observation, actually. Well, for some, I think it's really like the the conclusion or like the the end because or the like the highest point but it's just uh i think in my research i kind of discovered that it's not the end point mm. it has just the end point is when it's really brilliant and white and like it's really perfect but then it has like this afterlife after being this perfect yeah so there is this sort of peak of being like really white and then yeah so would you advise, in your case, uh, by, by the producers to make less white products and more colored products? Mm, or just less products? That's also <laughs> a good one. <laughs> okay, anything else you would like to add, Eloise? No. In that case, thank you all. And thank you to Monty, who is our recording assistant. Um, that's it. Thanks. Design, 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 design